Our scripture this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, <clears throat> and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus, the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, it was very disruptive when you entered uh, Joseph's life and Mary's life. And it was disruptive for great good. And so I ask you to repeat that gracious disruption this morning and to do it in our lives, to enter our lives through this word. And I pray that that would happen for the first time in the lives of the as yet unconverted this morning and that you would bring their hearts in submission, glad submission to your Lordship and to your work as Savior. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, one of the themes that we're going to come up against uh, again and again as uh, we journey through Matthew's gospel is that when the kingdom of God comes, it comes with mystery. Uh, it comes with uh, questions that aren't answered, uh, tensions that aren't resolved fully, uh, ambiguities that are not fully clarified, um, um, and and things that aren't fully explained uh, within the walls of this world uh, before Jesus returns. And uh, I confess to you that this uh, part of God's kingdom is not one that sits easily with me. Uh, I have a very strong preference, uh, both personally and pastorally, uh, to, to have answers, to have explanations, to... Uh, to minimize ambiguities and to 
accentuate uh, clarifications. And uh, I have a very strong uh, preference, both personally and pastorally, to have tensions uh, resolved. Uh, I want all the loose ends to be tied together and put in a very nice a kind of tidy wrapping with a beautiful bow. Yes, I said bow on top. And I want, I want to receive that kind of uh, packaging of truth. And I, I love it in those rare occasions when as a pastor I can present such a tidy little package to you. Uh, but here's what's interesting about the Christmas story. There's nothing tidy about it. And one of the greatest dangers for Christians uh, during the Advent season and during the lead up to Christmas is that, is that we who are so familiar with this story and who have it retold to us uh, through various channels of our culture over and over and over again, that we uh, will be numb to its mysteries and numb in particular uh, to the ways in which it is not sentimental, the ways in which it is not romantic. In other words, that, that we would be numb to the ways in which it's traumatic because that's exactly what it is. It's very easy to read this account of Mary and Joseph, which is very uh, concise and sparse, in what Matthew tells us, and to pass over, to just treat it like it's this two-dimensional story where Mary and Joseph aren't real people and where we don't really think about what it meant for Jesus to enter their lives. But that's not what Matthew wants us to do. Matthew wants us to think about what it costs for Jesus to enter their lives because he wants every Christian to be thinking about what it costs for Jesus to enter their lives. Because it does come at a cost. What I want to do this morning is I want to look at our text in two parts. Uh, I want to look uh, first at, uh, at what Matthew shows us about uh, what it cost uh, Mary and Joseph for Jesus to enter their lives. And then... Uh, I want to think with you in the second half of the sermon about three themes, if you will, three reflections that apply uh, to every Christian and that are part of every Christian's experience. Next week, we're going to look at the virgin birth and uh, why the virgin birth is essential to the good news of the gospel. But this week, I just wanted to pause and to think with you about the amazing mysteries of God's providence in Mary's life and in Joseph's life. So let's, let's do that. Let's look at the costs of Jesus' entrance into Mary's life and into Joseph's life. You know, one of the things that separates uh, Matthew's gospel from uh, Luke's gospel is, and you may have noticed this and wondered about it, is that um, Luke's gospel really emphasizes Mary's perspective. And... Matthew's gospel emphasizes Joseph's perspective. In fact, if we didn't have uh, Matthew's gospel, uh, we wouldn't know hardly anything about Joseph. But Matthew gives us all the way from uh, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through the end of chapter 2. These are stories and episodes from Jesus' early life in which Joseph plays the decisive role. But even though Matthew's emphasis is on uh, Joseph's experience, he doesn't pass over Mary. And 
And, and look at verses uh, 18 and 19. He gives us a lot there about Mary. And, and it's worth thinking about. And we know two things. Uh, she was betrothed to Joseph and she was found to be with a child. So what does it mean that she was betrothed to Joseph? Well, it, it, it probably means that she was engaged to Joseph pursuant to what at that time would have been uh, essentially a marriage contract that had been entered into on her behalf uh, by her parents with Joseph. Probably entered into when she was somewhere between 12 and 13 years of age. And it would have been customary for her to remain at home for at least a year after the marriage contract was negotiated. And not yet to be in Joseph's house. And not yet to consummate the marriage. But uh, under uh, Jewish custom, Mary would have been regarded as Joseph's husband during that period, even though the marriage had not been concluded or uh, consummated. And in order for that engagement to be uh, broken, there would have had to have been uh, essentially the equivalent of a divorce. Now, Jesus enters Mary's life during that engagement period. Matthew doesn't um, give us any more information about Mary's character. But if you read Luke's gospel, what you find about Mary is very, very remarkable. She was really an astonishing young woman whose heart was full of God's hope, full of God's word, It's very suggestive to me to think about what kind of home was it that Mary grew up in? What role did the scriptures play? And when Gabriel comes to her in Luke chapter 1 and announces this amazing message to her, um, she is immediately submissive. And then the Magnificat later on in chapter 1 where she just pours out praise to God that is uh, so dense with Bible that you just stand in awe of the piety and the character of this young lady. And it's this young lady with that character who is then found to be with child. Now, Matthew tells us that it's by the Holy Spirit, and he tells us that because that's true. And he also tells us that uh, because that's uh, what Mary explained, because that's what uh, Gabriel explained to Mary. We know that Mary's pregnancy wasn't a surprise to Mary because in Luke chapter 1, uh, Gabriel, the, announce, the, agent, uh, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and announces to her what's about to happen. That's called the Annunciation in Luke chapter 1. Uh, and he announces it to her before it happens. So Matthew's not describing uh, Mary, uh, Mary's perspective on the pregnancy. What he's, what he's emphasizing is how her pregnancy looked and felt to Joseph. Who had no advance warning. Now this is one of those points where you have to, you have to move out of two dimensions. You have to move into three. Joseph knew that he had not fathered that child. And Mary knew that Joseph had not fathered that child. 
So what's the cost of Jesus' entrance into her life at this point? Well, this is her husband. And in her husband's eyes, she has to see that she is now regarded as exactly the opposite of what she really was. She was pure. And now Joseph, as any reasonable person would have, right? Now regards her as impure. She had been faithful. And now in the eyes of her husband, she knows that she is regarded as unfaithful. And in God's providence, this is what just struck me so powerfully this week as I was thinking about Mary. In God's providence, she is now forced to carry a shame that is not hers. Doesn't that sound like her son? And in Joseph's eyes, she looks like a hypocrite. She looks like exactly the opposite of what she had spent her whole life trying to be on the inside. This huge gap between who she appeared to be and who she actually was. You know, when Gabriel uh, comes to Mary and in Luke chapter 1, and it's just Gabriel and Mary, do you remember how Gabriel addresses Mary? He says, Hail, depending on your translation, hail or greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And yet now, because she is the favored one, I want you to feel this, because she is the Lord's favored one, and because the Lord is with her, she, in the eyes of her community, and in the eyes of her husband, in the eyes of her family, is bearing the burden of a shame that was not her own. It was the kind of shame that would have potentially made her liable to the death penalty, to death by stoning. So, When Jesus entered Mary's life, it complicated her life greatly. What about Joseph? Uh, What was the cost of uh, Jesus' entrance into Joseph's life? Well, um, again, very costly, but very different from Mary. Um, You've got to make Joseph a real three-dimensional person again, not, not, a, not a cartoon character, and just kind of put yourself in Joseph's uh, place. You're betrothed to Mary uh, because you want to be married to her. Uh, likely, you have seen something in her, uh, probably her piety. And you have sought to honor God in the way that you've conducted yourself before him and with Mary. And you've guarded your purity and you've guarded Mary's purity. And then she comes to you and somehow you discover she comes to you to tell you or you discover somehow that she is now pregnant and you know you didn't father that child. So now. Uh, you had been looking forward to your, your, uh, your marriage, to your wedding. That was going to be a great celebration. And now uh, the one to whom you've been married um, uh, had been engaged. Now she comes and she's pregnant. And she, she not only tells you uh, that, and on top of that, she tells you that this child was conceived by the Holy Spirit. 
Now just think about that. You're Joseph. You are a just man. You're a righteous man. And what it sounds like to you is that this one who uh, now appears to have been guilty of adultery, she's compounded that sin with blasphemy now. So what do you do? You're between a rock and a hard place because uh, on the one hand, uh, you are uh, the custom uh, of your day. The prevailing social norm would have been for you to divorce Mary. But Matthew tells us something very interesting about Joseph, right? He doesn't, he doesn't just say he was a just man and then ends the uh, sentence in verse 19. He says, and her husband Joseph, being a just man, notice this, and unwilling to put her to shame. Now look at this. Joseph has no advance notice of this pregnancy. Very different from Mary, right? Joseph is just operating on what he sees and hears. And what he sees and hears leads him, the only reasonable conclusion he can draw is that Mary is guilty and not telling the truth. And yet, even in the face of what he regards as dishonesty and infidelity, even then, when his pain is maximized, he is yet unwilling in that moment to put Mary to shame, even though it would have been totally just in a certain sense for him to have a public trial. Sounds a lot like the son that Joseph would adopt, doesn't it? And so Joseph finds this way of upholding mercy and also extricating himself in a certain sense. And so he resolves to divorce her quietly. And then the angel comes. Remember I mentioned mystery at the beginning? How come the angel didn't come ahead of time? How come God dealt so differently with Mary and Joseph? with respect to Mary's pregnancy. Why did Mary get advance notice, but Joseph didn't? They're on two sides of the same event, and yet God deals so drastically differently with each of them in His providence. Isn't that interesting? Friends, don't ever assume that God has to deal the same with all of His children in the same circumstances. God's plan for Mary was different in some way than God's plan for Joseph. What comes out of, of Joseph not knowing for sure is that his heart is tested and proven, isn't it? Here's a man who in uh, conditions where it's, it would have been totally justifiable for him to be wrathful. He remembers mercy. And I have just been Uh, reflecting this week on how amazing the wisdom of God is that God would place his son into a home over which that man was the head. In which Joseph would be able to teach young Jesus the gospel 
in which Joseph would be able to teach the incarnate Son of God the relationship between God's righteousness and God's mercy. Because it's been tested in Joseph's life. It's really remarkable. But make no mistake about it. There is, in God's providence, in Joseph's life, there is a cost of ambiguity, isn't there? There's a cost of confusion. There's a cost of of misunderstanding. There's a cost of pain. And it doesn't end here with the angel's visit. It continues for a long time. But this morning, I just want you to notice that, that Jesus' coming into Joseph's life cost Joseph greatly, didn't it? So you have these two very virtuous people, Mary and Joseph. And in God's providence, their lives are complicated by the entrance of Jesus Christ. Now, there's something very unique to their experience. No question about it. The incarnation only happens once. Only needs to happen once. Praise God. But there is also much, I think, in Joseph and Mary's experience that is universal uh, for all uh, believers, everyone to whom, into whose life Jesus enters. And so that's what I want to do now, is I want to reflect with you on three, uh, three themes that I think we uh, are meant to draw out of uh, Mary and Joseph's experiences of God's providence and his sovereignty and uh, the things that apply to our lives that are universal to every uh, Christian life. And those three things are the providence that brings mystery, the guidance that God gives us through mystery, and the assurance that uh, Jesus gives us in mystery. So providence, guidance, and assurance. Now, providence is one of those uh, Presbyterian words, isn't it? It's not a capital city of uh, Rhode Island. Uh, Providence is a theological term that describes the Bible's teaching, that summarizes the Bible's teaching about God and his control. And let me summarize it this way. The God the Bible shows to us is 100% sovereign over everything, every person, every detail, and every life, all the time, everywhere. And he guides all those things and all those people and all those events and all those details toward his appointed goal. So he's in control of everything and he guides everything toward his appointed goal. That is a big theme in what Matthew shows us, isn't it? We started to see it last week. In, um, in the genealogy. And what Matthew and jo- what, what Mary and Joseph's story shows us, they show- Mary and Joseph's story shows us two things that are about God's providence that are relevant in each of our lives. First, the certainty of God's providence. And secondly, the mystery of God's providence. The certainty of it. Look at all the ways in which uh, Matthew just emphasizes that God was uh, totally in control, that everything that happens here is, is like a story being painted. Uh, it's like God's sovereignty is this canvas that he lays out. And then it's also the, 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 the story that's painted on the canvas. And it's the brush that 
paints the, the story in a particular way. And it's the hand that, that guides the brush, that holds the brush. And it's the, the mind that guides the hand that holds the brush, that paints on the canvas, that God's sovereignty spread according to the design in the mind of the one who spread the canvas and sets the paints out and guides the brush and the hand. There are no accidents here. Look at how Matthew sums it up in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. That's Matthew's understanding of how history works. It works according to God's plan. It works according to his commands. It works according to his control, not just in the big picture, but also the fine details of how it is that Mary caught Joseph's eye. Friends, your life, my life, is on the same canvas. It's being painted by the same hand with the same brush using the same colors according to the very same design. And there may be difficulties in that painting. You may be in a part of your story where the brush has taken up some darker hues. We'll pull back through the lens of how God dealt with Mary and Joseph And trust that the hand knows what it's doing. Because the design is perfect. But there is mystery. The fact of God's providence is clear. But God's purpose in His providence is often very mysterious and hard for us to understand. We've reflected on that a little bit with respect to Mary and Joseph. Why is it? Why is it that God doesn't give Joseph the same advance notice that Mary does? We don't know. Why is it that the Lord didn't somehow publicly vindicate Joseph and Mary in the eyes of their community? We don't know. It's a mystery. Uh, Why did uh, the Lord permit Joseph and Mary literally to live the rest of their lives under the shadow of scandal? Do you know later on, we're going to see in Matthew 13, I make no predictions when we're going to get there, so don't hold me to anything. But when we get to Matthew 13 and Jesus is in the synagogue in Nazareth and he's teaching, this is Jesus' hometown. And he's teaching and the people go, where did this guy get these things? I mean, isn't this the carpenter's son? Well, you know the right way to read that? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Scare quotes? Jesus is in his 30s. And still in his hometown, there's the the shadow of a scandal. Still, the whispers. Why didn't God publicly vindicate Joseph and Mary? We don't know. There are mysteries to God's providence in our lives. And we need to acknowledge them. We need to not hide from them. We need not insist or we shouldn't insist or expect that God is going to answer every one of our questions or 
tie every one of our loose ends in our experience together with a nice little bow before Jesus returns. He's God. So what do you do? How do you live with that mystery and the reality of mystery? You know, if you're a non-Christian, you're here. I just got to tell you, as a pastor, I just so want to give you a package where everything makes sense and you'll go, wow, Christianity all holds together. No unanswered questions. I'll be a Christian. That's a real desire in my heart. You know what? If, if we could do that, you would know that Christianity was a lie. Because God is so great and he's so wise and he is doing 10 trillion more things in every instant that we could possibly realize. I have trouble keeping track of what my three children are doing in any given day. God has everything. He is the mind that made the universe. He is so infinitely wise. If there was not mystery in what Christianity had to say, you shouldn't listen to it. But God doesn't just leave us to hang in the wind. He gives us guidance. Guidance through mystery. He does it for Mary and Joseph. Do you notice that? There's great pain. There's great ambiguity. Uh, not everyone understands. In fact, most people around Mary and Joseph misunderstand. But God doesn't leave them hanging. He doesn't leave them twisting. He comes into their lives and he gives them guidance. And he uses angels and he uses dreams. And so you're saying, well, yeah, easy, Mike. If God sent me an angel and appeared in my dream. I would have no problem following him. Really? Friends, you realize God has given us something much better than he ever gave to Joseph and Mary. We have a much better messenger than the angel. We have the Holy Spirit. And we have something much better than a dream. We have the scriptures that God has given to us. Peter says of the gospel that the scriptures are about. He says the gospel that we have received that tells us about who God is, what He's done, what the meaning of our life is. He says that these are things that Christians have. The things that we have that God has given to us are things into which angels long to look. That Gabriel, who came to Mary, and that the angel who came to Joseph, are on tippy toes wanting to look into the gospel that God has spread out before us. Something much clearer than anything that Joseph or Mary ever received in their dreams and in their angel visitations. And we know, friends, in the midst of mystery, that Romans 8.28 is true. For we know, right? That's what Paul says. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's clear guidance. It calls for our faith because it's backed up by the full faith and credit of what Jesus has done. Now, in closing, I want to think with you about assurance. Okay, God's providence brings us mystery. 
but God gives us guidance through mystery. But ultimately, what is our assurance in mystery and in the difficult places uh, where God's providence leads us because Jesus' entrance into our lives has cost? What is our ultimate assurance? And the way I want to uh, the way I want to suggest to you that God means for us to find assurance is by turning the Christmas story right side up. See, we've been looking at it upside down until now. We've been thinking about what it cost Joseph and Mary for Jesus to enter their lives. But here's the question that the table points us to this morning. What did it cost Jesus to enter their lives? What did it cost Jesus to enter your life, friend? That's really putting the Christmas story right side up. Because that's the wonder of the story. What did it cost Jesus to enter our lives? It's an astonishing thing to think about what he was willing to do. You know, what gives me assurance in the midst of confusion and in the midst of ambiguity is not the cost that I've been willing to pay to follow Jesus. But it's, it's remembering again and walking my heart and mind back through the cost that Jesus was willing to pay in order to enter my life. Friends, that's how to honor Christ. The greatest cost of discipleship is the cost that Jesus paid himself in order to make disciples. It was he who put himself under the hardest, most difficult providence that God had ever placed on any human life. He who willingly put himself in the midst of the hardest hardship that anyone had ever gone through. It was he far more than Mary and Joseph, who lived his entire life with all kinds of stigma over his head. When he's arguing with the Pharisees in John chapter 8 and speaking about the highest, most lofty things possible about God as his Father, you know what the Pharisees say back? Jesus is 33 years old at this point, And the Pharisees say, you talk to us about a father. Well, at least we weren't born of fornication. Nothing could have been further from the truth about Jesus, right? He carried that stigma his entire life. And that was just practice for being on that cross. A life of misunderstanding, a life of misperception, a life of suffering a life of the appearance of shame, and yet through it all, unashamed to take our nature, unashamed to identify with our need, unashamed to place himself under the hardest providence of all, always willing in every instant of his life to pay that cost. Every moment of his life, with every breath, he was paying a cost to enter the lives of his people. It's so beautiful. It's so compelling. You know, on the night in which our Lord was betrayed, and when he held up the bread, you know, in effect what he's saying to his disciples, he's saying, you know, you know what it's you know what it's gonna cost me to enter your lives? 
It's going to cost me the breaking of my body. It's going to cost me the shedding of my blood. It's going to... It's going to cost me mockery and misunderstanding and misperception. It isn't just going to be over tomorrow. It's going to continue through my death, through the grave, through my resurrection, through my exaltation of the Father's right hand. It's going to continue. And I'm going to continue to be slandered until I return. But I am unashamed to enter your lives. I am unashamed to call you my brothers. I am unashamed to identify with you in your nature and in your need. I am so unashamed to bear your shame that when I look at the cross, I despise the shame of the cross. It's a little thing to me. So that you might be called my brothers. That's what this table is reminding us of. That Jesus is not ashamed for us to be called his brothers. And he is saying in effect to his disciples, just like he is saying to us again this morning, saying, you know, when, when I go to Calvary, I'm going to teach you a lesson. And the lesson is going to be this, that there is no unworthiness in you. And there is, and there never will be any misery upon you, any need that you have that could possibly deter me from, from calling you with gladness, my brothers. When Jesus enters a life, it costs. It cost him everything. And he was not only willing, but glad to pay it so that we might come to Him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, feed us now. Remind us not only how You came, but that You've come. We pray in Your name. Amen. Please stand as we now sing. Let all